stop. This message could save you from investing your precious time into a true crime story that goes nowhere. Avoid that disappointment. You need True Crime Feed Podcast. Unlimited premium true crime curated for you. Find out about a female serial dater turned serial killer. The truth about the D.A.R.E. program. Bizarre black markets, political murder plots, and a school for troubled teens so horrific it could be a Stephen King novel. True Crime Feed sifts the archives from the past decade to select the best cases and gives you a quick overview sprinkled with a teensy bit of humor, plus a weekly top three power ranking for shows currently trending, and lets you know what shows to send down your podcast queue trapdoor. You know you want those thrill chills, so come and get them. Subscribe to True Crime Feed. That's True Crime F-E-E-D wherever you get your podcasts. In the moral fabric of society, doing the right thing is often seen as a commendable and virtuous act, reflecting one's ethics and values. However, life is intricate and even the purest intentions can sometimes lead to unexpected and adverse outcomes. This paradoxical phenomenon, where doing what is morally and ethically right backfires, raises intriguing questions about the complexity of human decision-making and the unpredictable nature of consequences. Join us for this still-unsolved double feature where two men who did the right thing seem to have paid the price. March 3, 1973, marked a turning point in Henry Baltimore's life. In his East Lansing, Michigan apartment, two individuals forcibly entered, wielding firearms, and proceeded to rob him. At the age of 21, Henry endured the terrifying ordeal of being bound and struck with the pistol, rendering him completely defenseless, while the intruders pillaged the premises he shared with three roommates. Roy Davis, one of the perpetrators, was apprehended several weeks later, thanks to Henry's positive identification. On May 24, 1973, Henry provided testimony against Roy during a preliminary hearing and was slated to testify again, once the case progressed to the circuit court. Tragically, less than a week later, Henry mysteriously disappeared without leaving a single trace. Even after five decades, his ultimate fate remains an enigma. Henry Baltimore was an accomplished student who held the status of a junior, pursuing a double major in music and social science. The hopeful student had aspirations of becoming a social worker. He possessed a deep affection for Michigan State University and served as the drum major for the university's esteemed marching band, the Spartans. Notably, he held the distinction of being the first African-American to hold this prestigious position in the institution's history. On the evening of Wednesday, May 30th, 1973, Henry informed his roommates that he intended to visit the university's library, where he held a part-time job. Later that night, when his sister arrived at his apartment to retrieve a document she planned to type for him, she discovered Henry's car parked outside 
and his belongings untouched in his room. But Henry himself was nowhere to be found. Henry's absence persisted throughout the night, causing his loved ones to grow increasingly concerned for his safety. They promptly contacted the East Lansing Police Department, seeking assistance and attempting to report him as a missing person. However, they were met with the discouraging response that they must wait at least 48 hours before filing an official report. Despite the passage of two days, Henry remained unaccounted for, compelling authorities to formally declare him as a missing person. Initially, investigators entertained the notion that Henry may have intentionally vanished. His fleeing would have been driven by a desire to avoid testifying against Roy Davis in the trial set to commence the following week. But after a few days had elapsed, they conceded that the possibility of an abduction could not be dismissed. On June 5, 1973, the police department released a statement regarding the case, saying, The circumstances surrounding Henry's disappearance are dubious, and foul play is suspected. During the March 1973 incident, Henry found himself alone among his roommates when the perpetrators forcefully entered their apartment. He was swiftly subdued, bound, and subjected to brutal pistol whippings. Helplessly, he could only bear witness as the intruders ransacked the premises, making off with various items, including clothing, a watch, golf clubs, and $110 in cash before departing. Amidst the chaos of the robbery, Henry's eyes locked onto the face of one of the assailants, Roy Davis, a familiar face and casual acquaintance. The second man accompanying Roy was a complete stranger to Henry. Roy, aware of Henry's occasional marijuana usage in the past, seemed to have developed the belief that Henry was in possession of a substantial amount of pot that he kept in his apartment. Consequently, he demanded to know the whereabouts of Henry's alleged stash. Growing increasingly enraged upon discovering Henry had no such stash in his possession, Initially hesitant to report the crime, Henry's reluctance likely stemmed from the genuine fear of revenge. Then, the following week, he mustered the courage to approach the authorities, providing a detailed account of the incident. With unwavering certainty, Henry identified Roy Davis as one of the perpetrators and willingly agreed to testify against him during the upcoming preliminary hearing. Roy, upon learning that Henry had taken the matter to the police, proceeded to do something very surprising. In an attempt to rectify the situation, he returned all the stolen items to Henry and begged him to retract the charges. Seeing an opportunity to put all of this behind them, Henry visited the police once again, expressing a change of heart and his disinterest in pursuing prosecution against Roy. That didn't fly with the police. Law enforcement officials remained very focused on prosecuting Roy and refused to drop the charges. In yet another surprising move, Henry resorted to bargaining with Roy. He proposed a compromise where he would provide mild testimony to ensure that Roy's punishment would not be severe. When the day eventually came for Roy's preliminary hearing, Henry failed to make an appearance in court. Since he held the status of a crucial witness, 
the court found it of the utmost importance that he be present. For that reason, the court issued a bench warrant for his arrest and imposed a fine of $50 for his non-compliance with the hearing. Consequently, the preliminary hearing was rescheduled, ultimately taking place on May 24, 1973, where Henry did show up and finally provided his testimony against Roy. Following Henry's testimony, the presiding judge concluded that there existed sufficient evidence to proceed with a trial. Roy, seething with anger, directed verbal threats toward Henry. In a concerning encounter, George Heath, one of Henry's roommates, was present at the apartment when Roy paid an unwelcome visit shortly after the hearing. Roy confronted Henry with an ominous warning. He allegedly told him, that wasn't mild stuff. You keep that up, and you're gonna be in big trouble. I ain't got nothing to lose at this point. Alarming circumstances unfolded less than a week later when Henry suddenly vanished, leaving behind a void of unanswered questions. On June 1st, 1973, Roy's arraignment took place in the Ingram County Circuit Court. Following the payment of bail, he was released, but no specific trial date was set. Detectives candidly acknowledged that unless Henry resurfaced, the charges against Roy would likely be dismissed. The immediate belief was a certainty that Roy was behind his sudden disappearance. But, as investigators looked into that theory, they were unable to uncover any evidence supporting the hypothesis of his abduction. Some investigators even entertained the notion that Henry orchestrated his disappearance, driven by a desire to evade testifying against Roy in court. Their argument hinged on the fact that Henry had failed to attend the initial preliminary hearing, suggesting that his vanishing act may have been a deliberate strategy to avoid testifying. Nonetheless, witnesses came forward, recounting sightings of Roy forcefully banging on Henry's apartment door on the day of his disappearance. This testimony was sufficient to convince Henry's loved ones and acquaintances that foul play was involved in his puzzling absence. Contrary to the theory that Henry deliberately skipped the first preliminary hearing out of fear, his sister provided a significant revelation. She explained that Henry's absence from court that day was not due to fear, but rather because she had sustained a leg injury, rendering her unable to drive. In a selfless act of prioritizing his sister's well-being, Henry chose to accompany her to the hospital instead of attending the hearing. This account was corroborated by officials from the University Health Center, who confirmed Henry's presence with his sister on the scheduled day of the hearing. Henry's father expressed his conviction that his son did not vanish voluntarily, asserting, I'm pretty sure he did not run, and if he did, he would run home scared. He emphasized that Henry cherished his Buick Electra and would not have disappeared without it. Approximately one month after Henry's disappearance, a reward of $1,000 was offered for any information leading to his whereabouts. The sum had been raised through contributions from various businesses in Henry's hometown of Jackson, Michigan. Detective James Kelly from East Lansing expressed hope that the reward would generate new leads as the investigation had hit a standstill. Despite the absence of evidence indicating foul play, 
there was also a lack of any substantial indications that Henry had left of his own accord, leaving investigators with an ongoing mystery. The FBI took action in Henry's case by distributing missing person flyers bearing his photograph. They also issued an alert to state agencies, ensuring that law enforcement across different jurisdictions would be notified if he were encountered. Any police department that came into contact with Henry was instructed to inform the East Lansing detectives immediately. As the fall semester of 1973 began at MSU, Henry should have been commencing his senior year, but his whereabouts remained entirely unknown. Detective Kelly acknowledged that the investigation had left investigators perplexed. He stated, he has either done a good job of hiding himself or somebody else has done a good job of hiding him. The investigation is at an absolute dead end. In the absence of Henry's testimony, Roy's case proceeded culminating in his conviction for a lesser charge of felonious assault in October. While awaiting sentencing, Roy professed his confusion with regard to Henry's disappearance, expressing a sincere wish for Henry's return. He conveyed to investigators, I wish he would show up. The whole thing is really hurting me. You just have to know the judge is gonna take all this stuff about me being responsible into consideration. I'd be even happier than his parents if he showed up tomorrow. Roy adamantly denied ever threatening Henry, expressing his understanding that Henry had no choice but to testify and expressing no anger towards him. He even mentioned playing cards with Henry approximately a week after his testimony, indicating that Henry did not display any signs of fear. Roy firmly maintained his innocence, stating, if there's been any foul play, it sure doesn't involve me. Henry's family, on the other hand, remained uncertain about whether to believe Roy's claims. Laurel, in particular, commented on her lack of personal acquaintance with Roy, but revealed that conversations with some of his acquaintances painted a different picture. They suggested that Roy was capable of inflicting harm on others. Laurel emphasized that Henry, as an intelligent and ambitious young man with a promising future ahead, would never willingly abandon his aspirations and abruptly leave his life behind. Tragically, by the conclusion of 1973, Henry's case had gone cold. His disappearance failed to garner significant attention from the media causing his case to quickly fade from public consciousness. Despite this, Henry's family remained unwavering in their search for him, and even the investigators conceded that foul play was likely involved in his vanishing. As the years turned into decades, the enigma surrounding Henry's fate persisted. In 2014, Laurel reflected on the devastating effect it had on their family, particularly her parents who clung to hope that one day they would get answers, that Henry would unexpectedly walk through the door with his familiar smile. But sadly, that long-awaited moment never came to reality. Instead, they were left with an unfillable void in their hearts, forever burdened by the agonizing uncertainty of what truly happened to Henry. To this day, the disappearance of Henry Baltimore remains a mystery.
from the realms of personal relationships to the broader scope of societal endeavors. The cases of good intentions gone awry serve as cautionary tales, tales that prompt us to reflect on our own choices and the potential ramifications they might entail. But not all of us get the chance to reflect in that way. Henry Baltimore didn't get that chance. And neither did Oliver Munson. If there was one thing that Oliver Munson loved, it was all types of cars. Buying them, fixing them up, polishing them, and tinkering with them in any way were among his favorite hobbies. If a car was involved, you can rest assured the 39-year-old was interested. Munson made a living working as an industrial arts teacher in a Maryland school district while he lived in the comfortable suburb of Catonsville. Working that job allowed Oliver to save up enough money to further his hobby. In January of 1983, he set out in pursuit of his dream car. He went to a dealer to buy a Datsun 240Z. Unbeknownst to him, though, he was buying from someone with shady intentions. Dennis Watson, the man who sold him his car, was actually the ringleader of a car theft operation. The vehicle that Oliver Munson just bought had been stolen three months earlier. Watson had been using his business as a cover for a chop shop, a place where his stolen cars were dismantled and sold for parts. Entire cars were also sold, along with fake ownership papers. Police had been staking out his garage for weeks before they had enough to make a move. On March 16, 1983, Watson's business was raided and he was placed in handcuffs. In validation of their surveillance, the police recovered several illegal titles, dismantled cars, and stolen ID tags. They were now building their case against Dennis Watson. As the police were combing through Watson's records, they came across the name Oliver Munson. Detective Philip Goodwin learned that Oliver was in possession of a stolen car that he'd recently purchased from the chop shop. Unfortunately for Munson, the police weren't sure if he was aware of the fact that his car was stolen. They attempted to reach him at his home, but he was not there. Before leaving, they towed his car away to hold it as evidence. The detective was eventually able to get in touch with Oliver, and he agreed to answer some questions. He confirmed that he purchased the car from Dennis Watson. He also was very adamant that he was unaware that it was stolen. Detective Goodwin believed him but then hit Oliver with some heavy news. He would need to testify against Watson in court. Oliver immediately became uneasy. Unfortunately for him, though, he had no choice but to testify. The trial wouldn't take place for nearly a year. Oliver was scheduled to testify in court on February 16, 1984. Three days before his court date, Oliver was leaving for work. A neighbor said that he'd seen him heading out at around 8 a.m. He made his turn onto Orpington Road and was never seen again. One of his co-workers recalled that he was not known to miss work almost ever. So, when he didn't arrive at Ellicott City Middle School that morning, both students and staff began to worry. Oliver's brother James also began to worry. 
He had called him relentlessly to no avail. The next day, the day after Oliver disappeared, James decided to drive over to Oliver's house himself. He looked throughout the house and couldn't find him. His home was also undisturbed. The following day, though, James learned that someone had broken into Oliver's home and stole his video equipment. Police have never been able to determine if this break-in was related to Oliver's disappearance. Fearing the worst, he went to the police to file a missing persons report. Three more days would pass before a new development. On February 16th, Oliver's car was found abandoned on Brayside Road. It was just a few blocks away from his house. Curiously, his car was parked facing the opposite direction of his route to work. One of the tires was flat, although it did not have a leak. His stereo had been stolen. His work papers and lunch were sitting on the front seat. There was no evidence to give any indication as to his whereabouts, except that this exact same thing had happened before. On November 20th, 1973, 29-year-old Clinton Glenn was found burned to death in a vehicle. The car was registered to Dennis Watson. Like Oliver Munson, Clinton had been asked to testify against Watson in an armed robbery trial. Witness testimony led to Watson being indicted for Clinton Glenn's murder. The key witness in that trial died of a suspicious drug overdose. Without the witness, the prosecution had to drop the charges. Knowing all of that, it would seem obvious that Dennis Watson was behind Oliver's disappearance. The difference in his case, though, is that the investigators could never find a connection to Watson. For that reason, the investigation into what happened to Oliver Munson stalled for months. Then, the police heard from a man named Hilton Solomon. Solomon told police that his car had been stolen just hours before Oliver had reportedly disappeared. On February 27th, two weeks after Oliver's disappearance, Solomon found his missing car in Leakin Park in West Baltimore. His car was taken by police, checked, and released back to him. Solomon decided to clean it. That's when he found several receipts from a video store with Oliver's name on them. Curiously, the police made no mention of finding that during their search. Detective Goodwin then examined the car. He found what he described as brownish stains on the front right-hand side of the vehicle. Under the seat was also a spent cartridge case, suggesting that a gun had been fired in the car. On one of the video store receipts were red smudges. Tests done on the stains and smudges revealed that it was human blood. This would suggest that Oliver met with foul play, but there were actually no records documenting his blood type, so the police couldn't be too sure. When it came to Dennis Watson's trial for the car theft, there was a surprising outcome. He pled guilty and got a 10-year prison sentence. He was paroled in 1989 after serving half his sentence. Oliver Munson's case, however, is still without any answers. The students still ask teachers from that time if anything has been uncovered regarding his disappearance. Sadly, the answer is always no. Oliver's mother died in 1990 without ever having learned what happened to her son.
Dennis Watson was the prime suspect in the disappearance of Oliver Munson, the obvious reason being that Munson was set to testify against him in court. He vanished just three days before he was due in court, and he was the state's only witness who could claim that Dennis was the person who sold him a stolen vehicle. There was also the fact that two other witnesses were found dead days before they were expected to testify against Dennis Watson. Due to the small amount of evidence found, investigators could only theorize what happened. Detective Goodwin believed that someone tampered with Oliver's car tire and caused it to go flat. Then, two or three men, driving Hilton Solomon's car, approached him under the guise of being helpful Samaritans. They had him sit in the front passenger seat and shot him in the back of the head. His body was then disposed of, most likely in Leakin Park. Some also believe that Oliver's disappearance was intentional. He was apparently dealing with a lot of personal turmoil during the time he vanished. His girlfriend broke up with him. The school he worked at was on the verge of closing, and his house was badly damaged when water pipes had burst. A friend told investigators that Oliver had joked about assuming a new identity after running away. This theory has also not been verified and is believed to have less merit than others. In 1985, Oliver Munson was legally declared dead and was classified as a victim of a presumptive homicide. The police have been unable to find Dennis Watson after he was out on parole. They would like to question him again about the disappearance. To this day, the disappearance of Oliver Munson remains unsolved.